is we're doing this tough question series. Can y'all go ahead and bring the lights up out there because we're going to be discussing around the table. Uh, we've got four tough questions that we're going to be looking at over the next four weeks. And, and uh, the reason we have tables is because there is going to be opportunities for you to discuss around the table um, uh, some of the questions that we have. So I guess we're going to do that. We need to make sure that everybody knows each other around the table. So let's just take 25 seconds and introduce yourself around the table. Do that real quick. Ready, set, go. table. There you go. There you go. All right. That was quick. Come on, Jeff. Okay. Now, by the way, if you hadn't heard, um, we've been praying for Mandy Pence. She got to come home from Dallas uh, from the hospital on Thursday. Uh, she's doing well. Her heart is pumping at a much higher rate. So, um, She's tired right now, but she is at home and, and grateful to be in her own bed. Uh, saw Ryan and, and William at the football game Friday night. So um, they're going to try to be getting back to normal as quickly as possible. There is a sign-up sheet if you want to take meals to them. It's back on the back table, and um, we'd encourage you to, to sign up. And the, the, the thing that we've got to be careful with, she has to be on a, a no-sodium diet or very low-sodium diet. So um, just, just check out those things. If you have any questions, if you want to to call Ryan or, or Mandy and talk to them specifically about it. But if you want to do a meal, that would be a big thing to help out. Okay, now that you've uh, introduced yourselves to one another, we're going to have just a few questions, a few discussion questions that your table is going to go through. And I think Alex is going to put them on the board if you forget them. But here's the first question to get you started. What was your favorite TV show growing up? Share with your table. Once you've answered that, move on to question two. Marital status of the parents in your favorite TV show. to uh, Andy Griffith. What happened to Opie's mom? Anybody know? Is she, she died? Okay, there you go. She died. Okay, sorry to interrupt. We're just pressing question at this table. Immediate family means mom, dad, brothers, sisters. How many, question three is, how many of your table have experienced divorce in their immediate family? That's mom, dad, brothers, sisters. Question four, in general, was divorce a positive or negative experience? And explain that. 
Yeah, question five. Go ahead to question five. This is true or false. Write down your answer to this one. Question five is people who divorce their spouses are less likely to find happiness than those who stay married. People who divorce their spouses are less likely to find happiness than those who stay married. True or false? All right, now, just guess one there, Wes. He's still reading the question. He's analyzing it. It's like one of those ACT, SAT tests, you know. Okay, anyway, we're going to be discussing a lot of things. Y'all are doing well. Y'all like this talking stuff, don't you? Now, let's, uh, let's move on with our discussion. Many of you have experienced the pain of divorce. Let's just see around the room how many of you have experienced divorce in your immediate family. Let me see your hands. That's well over 50% of us have experienced divorce in your family. Um, and I know many people are hanging on to their marriages right now by a thread, and they're asking, you know, how long am I supposed to put up with this? What am I supposed to do? I don't know what to do next. And uh, the stakes of what we're going to talk about today are extremely high. And, and I know that I am walking a very fine line um, as I talk today because the last thing I want to do is heap guilt on anybody for what's happened in your past. But at the same time, we've got to look at what God says about this and not just what people say about this uh, subject. And I hope that all of this is going to be covered with just a whole lot of grace and uh, that you walk out of here with some tools, not only to work on your marriage, but if you've experienced divorce, that you'll also have tools that, that God will um, begin to heal your heart because of what you've experienced. Let's look at uh, what Jesus had to say about this topic. Matthew 19, 3-9, you have these verses on your listening guide. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. All right, let's unpack this. Go back to verse 3. It says that the Pharisees came to test Jesus. The idea is to trap him. And you need to understand, this is not a casual theological question. The Pharisees knew what they were doing. They knew this was a hot-button issue. And they were trying to ensnare Jesus. So they were hoping he would get into serious trouble. And everybody who heard the question asked knew that this was a hot-button issue. And so they tuned in to see what Jesus would say. Now, you've got to understand, in, in Judaism, in, in Jesus' day in Judaism, there was an enormous dispute over what the, the biblical uh, grounds for divorce were. And the main text, Jewish first century practice of divorce, was based largely on Deuteronomy 24.1, which is what you have in front of you there. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something objectionable about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and sends her away from his house, and then you can read that passage if you want to, Moses goes on to explain, here's what you do in different situations. Um, and and uh, So you can read all about that. But, but the idea there is he talks about a certificate of divorce. Now, if a husband wanted to divorce his wife in the Old Testament times, he didn't go to the courts. He didn't go through the legal system. All he had to do was get a piece of paper, write out a brief statement, 
and, uh, and there would be a divorce. And it, the, the key phrase would be something like, you are free. So he would write down, you know, I, I am going to divorce you. You are free. He would give the certificate to his wife and they would be divorced. Notice it says a man to his wife because in, in the Jewish religion, in Judaism, a woman was not permitted to divorce her husband. She could try to separate from him, but she was not allowed legally to divorce her husband. A husband could, on the other hand, divorce his wife because women didn't have um, much rights back then. So what was happening here was this certificate of divorce was actually um, a protection to women. It was supposed to make it a little bit harder for divorce to happen. But the main thing was it was to grant the woman legal status. Because if she had a certificate of divorce from her husband, it said that she mattered. It said that she was free to remarry someone else. That was a big deal back in the Old Testament days. Now, the phrase in these verses that caused so much trouble with the rabbis, the teachers of that day, was this phrase, something objectionable. Other translations I've seen, it says something indecent. And rabbis had a huge debate because it's a little vague, isn't it? What is something objectionable or something indecent? Um, What exactly does that mean? Well, there were two rabbis who represented the almost opposite sides of the debate on this issue. And if you were a Jew at this time, you would be a follower of one of these rabbis, one of these schools of thought. Um, And there was one school, the school of um, Shemel, And he was quite strict on this quotation. He said it was sexual immorality. In other words, adultery was the only reason that a man could get a divorce from his wife. Um, School of Shemel. The other one was the school of Hillel. This rabbi was much looser about it. And there were vast numbers of writings in Jesus' day about what was permissible, according to Hillel, um, what was permissible for a divorce. And so here's some things. Rabbi said things. I am not making this up. Rabbi said things like this. There are writings in Jesus' day. Um, things like if she spoiled his dinner, if she burned his soup, then he could divorce her. If she spoke to a man in the streets, a husband could divorce her. No saying, hey, what's up? No, you're out of here. Um, if, she walked around the, if she walked around with her hair unbound, he could divorce her. If she argued, I like, I like this one. If she argued in a voice loud enough to be heard in the streets, heard next door, that he might divorce her. Rabbi Akiba, Rabbi Akiba actually said this. This is a quote. If a husband finds another woman more pleasing in appearance, he may divorce his wife. Well, that's a little scary, isn't it, ladies? If, if, if your husband can just do whatever he wants to, write you this nice little piece of paper and you're gone... That's not too cool. I wonder what Mrs. Akaba would say. You know, I'm sure she didn't think he was Tom Cruise or something like that. Uh, but she wasn't protected back then. Now, in Matthew 19, these verses we just read, which school of thought did Jesus' response put him in? The school of Shemel or the school of Hillel? Shemel was the one, the adultery only. Which one was it? Shemel. Very clearly, Jesus uh, fell into that part uh, in, into that school of thought. And, and it may be that the reason these Pharisees were trying to test Jesus is they knew, because Jesus had already said this in the Sermon on the Mount, His greatest sermon um, that, was, that was a lot earlier than this little testing thing. They knew Jesus' idea on divorce. And so it could be that they were trying to get Him in trouble with the majority of the population. Now, if we go back and read verse 1 of this, this chapter, it says that Jesus goes to the other side of the Jordan. Now, Matthew is not just trying to give you a geography lesson here. Whenever he tells you this, it's very important. And um, so what he says is he goes to the other side of the Jordan, to this area that's called Perea. 
Now, I'm going to draw, and I started to do, you know, kind of like a, a uh, Pictionary thing, but my artist's ability is not good, and I was afraid of what you might think. So anyway, let's say this is, you know, basically the Mediterranean Sea. Use your imagination. This is Israel. Here is the Sea of Galilee. And then you've got the Jordan River comes down here. And then you've got a bigger body of water here. Anybody know what this is? It's not a teardrop. It's the Dead Sea. Thank you. Jerusalem is right here. Now, the, the region that he's talking about is right in here. This is Perea. Now, there's two things you need to know about Perea. When it says he crossed the Jordan into Perea, the first thing you need to know is that it is associated with the area, the ministry of John the Baptist. You remember that it says John the Baptist lived out in the desert region and he wore camel's hair and he ate locusts and all that stuff. And when people went out to see John the Baptist, they would cross the Jordan River, go into the area of Perea. That's where he was. The second thing that you need to know is that this area was governed by a man named Herod Antipas. Now, Herod the Great was the one who was alive when Jesus was born. He had three sons. Whenever he died, his kingdom, his territory was divided up among the three of them. Herod Antipas was one of them. And Herod Antipas controlled this region. Now, this is a real big deal. Um, because some years earlier, Herod Antipas had gone to visit his brother Philip. He became infatuated with this woman named Herodias. And he decided that he wanted to marry her. Now, there's a couple of problems with that. Number one, Herod Antipas was already married. Herodias was already married to Herod Antipas' brother, Philip. And in addition to that, um, Herodias was also the daughter of another one of Herod Antipas's brother. You know, actually a half-brother. But, okay, so when he proposed to her, what he was saying, in effect, was, if we get married, you can be my niece and my wife and my ex-sister-in-law, and we can move to Arkansas and live in a trailer. Just kidding. Now, here's the deal. They each divorce their spouse. Herodias, Herod, Antipas divorce their spouse, and they get married to each other. They have committed adultery, and everybody knows it. So when it says that Jesus went into this area, he's in the area where Herod, Antipas is the ruler. And you need to know that John the Baptist was put into prison primarily because he said, he spoke out against Herod, Antipas, and he said, it is not right for you to marry your brother's wife or your other brother's daughter. <laughs> and he got thrown into prison for this. And then later, his head is chopped off because Herodias was a bitter woman and didn't like him speaking the truth. He is killed because he spoke out and said, it's not right for you. to. It's adultery what you're doing. So when these people come to Jesus, they knew he's in this region. They knew he's in hot water no matter what he answers. So they come to him, this remarkably courageous, defiant leader. And not, not only does Jesus not duck the question, he gets in their faces. He goes out of his way to get into trouble. And he says, if a woman divorces her husband, he had to be speaking about Herodias here. Because in the Jewish religion, was a woman per, uh, permitted to divorce her husband? No. But in the Roman world, they were. And Herodias did it. Women did it all of the time. Especially if they had power, they would divorce their husbands. So he goes out of his way. He's like, guys, do I have to draw you a picture here? He's like, John the Baptist was right. They can cut off all the heads they want to. Herodias is wrong. Herod is wrong. They're living in sin. Jesus goes out of his way to get into trouble. And, and then he does a surprising thing for a rabbi. He doesn't go back to Deuteronomy 24.1, which was considered to be the controlling text. Everybody in Judaism thought, this is the text that you go to. What Jesus does, he goes back further. He goes back to creation. And he says, have you not heard? Have you not read? He goes all the way back to Genesis. 
At the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus says, what was God's original intent in marriage? To see how easily I can get out of a marriage if I'm not happy? No. What was God's original intent when He created Adam and Eve in the garden? It was oneness, permanent, mutual, binding, joyful oneness. And the Pharisees are thinking, oh, we got him now. He went to the wrong passage. We got him now. So look what they said. They said, why did Moses command that a, that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Circle that, that word command. Because this is a big deal. Why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus' response is brilliant. He changes the verb. He's, he says, Moses permitted. Circle that word. Moses permitted. He doesn't say Moses commanded. He says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Why? Here's the key. Why? What does it say in that verse? Your hearts were hard. Jesus locates the problem right here. It's the hardening of a heart. This is because a heart that was once intended to be soft and pliant and tender and submissive has gotten hard and rigid and tough and cold. The real problem that Moses was addressing was the heart's hard-heartedness at work in this world. He says it wasn't God's plan for the human heart. In the beginning, God's gift to the human race was a love between a man and a woman, a tender, submissive heart between uh, a man and a woman. But in a fallen world, hearts get hard, don't they? And many couples experience this. During courtship days, serving her was a privilege. He carried her books home from school, and it was a privilege. When they go to college, he carries all of her treasures up into the dorm room, even if it's four or five flights of stairs, and it's a privilege. They get married. They go on the honeymoon. He carries the luggage everywhere, and it's a privilege. When they get home, he picks up her body, carries her across the threshold, and sometimes shortly thereafter, he develops back trouble. And about six months into the marriage, she comes up and she says, Honey, I'd really like to, to try this sofa in, in the, the, the living room. And he goes, Okay, baby, can you wait till halftime? Because um, then I'll switch over to the, uh, to the lazy boy and you can move it yourself. Right? That's, that's what happens because all of a sudden, no longer am I looking to serve others, I'm wanting to be served. No longer am I looking to reconcile with someone else, which I did when my heart was tender. My heart becomes hard and I start looking for ways to blame the other person. Instead of confessing my wrongdoing, I, ex I uh, exaggerate and magnify the wrongdoings of my partner so that I look better in my own eyes. This is the single most common way that people try to get off the hook when they're talking about a divorce. They'll say, I married the wrong person. I'm normal, but they're not. Now, I don't have time to get into it, but there's a study that finds this out quite consistently. We tend to marry someone with, this, with about the same level of pathology that we have. That's a real scary thought, isn't it? We tend to marry people that are about the same as us, same amount of problems, same types of things in their background. It just happens that way. And so it's not one or the other, it's, it's both in this problem. And Jesus says what's behind all the problems in human relationships is a hard heart. Well, so that brings up the question. People say, is it ever permitted for someone to get a divorce? Yet the answer is yes. And there's a couple of cases, and one of them is named right here. One situation where divorce is permitted is in verse 9. Matthew 19, 9, Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. 
Circle that phrase, marital unfaithfulness. Now, if you look on the back of your listening guide real quickly, you see a yes at the top and a no at the bottom. Just fold it in half because what we're going to do is I'm going to read you some situations and just no discussion, no thought, your gut level reaction, you hold up a yes or a no. Pick somebody at your table to tabulate the votes. Pick somebody real quick. Just point at them. All right, I hadn't given you a question yet. Pick somebody to tabulate. All right, you ready? Here we go. All you're going to do is hold up yes or no. First question. This, is, this exercise is called, is it marital unfaithfulness? All right, here's, here it is. Number one, is flirting with the opposite sex marital unfaithfulness? Yes or no? Somebody count your responses right now. All right, number two. Here we go. Emails containing personal information to someone of the opposite sex that is not your spouse. Yes or no? Just personal information. Y'all are trying to get technical. Yeah, I see what you're doing. We had this discussion in our Sunday team meeting. Well, it it depends on what the definition of is is. Number three. Here you go. Let's move on. Number three. Working alone with the opposite sex. Working alone with the opposite sex. Now, let's qualify it. Without your spouse's knowledge. Ah, some of you changed your answers, didn't you? I saw that. Working alone without, with the opposite sex without your spouse's knowledge. Okay. With your spouse's knowledge. Working alone with someone of the opposite sex. Does that change your answer? With your spouse's knowledge. Number four. Looking at the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition slash Victoria's Secret Catalog slash J.C. Penny Catalog. Is that marital unfaithfulness? Yes or no? Number five, online chat rooms. Online chat rooms. You going to online chat rooms. Is that marital unfaithfulness? Okay, up here they're saying, well, there's Christian chat rooms. Well, there's also sin in Christian camps too. But anyway, let's say non-Christian chat room. You're talking to someone of the opposite sex. Number six. Number six. Viewing pornography. Viewing pornography. Yes or no? Is that marital unfaithfulness? Two more, and then I just want to see how many we got response-wise. Number seven. Hugging or touching someone of the opposite sex that is not your spouse. I hear you. It depends. Okay? Last one. Last one. Kissing, caressing, everything but sexual intercourse. Is that marital unfaithfulness? Bonus question. Bonus question. How would your spouse answer each of those questions. You may say it's okay for you to do some of those things, but how would your spouse 
answer that question. If your spouse, listen to me, if your spouse answers differently, then for you, it is marital unfaithfulness. Now, let's just see what you got. That, that got serious real fast. It's flirting, marital, marital unfaithfulness. Six yeses. Did y'all have yes? How many yeses? Well, let's just say this. Is the majority yes or no? Majority's yes. Majority yes or no? Majority. Okay. Second one. Emails containing, containing personal information. Majority yes or no? Majority what? No. Okay. You were tied? Okay. Working alone with the opposite sex without your spouse's knowledge. Majority. I'm hearing all kinds of stuff there. Looking at the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition and all those other catalogs. Now, what was that? I didn't hear it. Say it again. Say it again. <laughs> He's just reporting. He's just reporting. <laughs> this is not necessarily... Um, you know, need to have that disclaimer before you report. I do not necessarily agree with this point of view, especially if your spouse is sitting right next to you. That's right. Um, online chat rooms. Yes or no? Majority? No. Anybody different? Okay. Viewing pornography. Y'all got louder on that one. Hugging or touching someone of the opposite sex. Yes or no? No. Do what? Ah, it's the intent. Okay. Kissing, caressing, everything but sexual intercourse. All right, let's move on. Let's be real clear on this. A lot of people believe that as long as they have not technically had sexual intercourse with someone else, then they have not sinned. What Jesus uses here, the term that he uses, is the term um, pornea, not, which we get our term pornography from, and it's not the term for adultery. Um, this term means more than just sexual intercourse. It could refer to lots of sexual immorality. Lots of folks play games on this point, so we gotta, we got to be real clear. The behavior that Jesus addresses here could involve different types of sexually inappropriate actions with someone other than your spouse. I know folks who've had emotional affairs, meaning that they had given their heart to someone else even though they hadn't given their body to someone else. And when their spouses found out, it caused almost as much trouble as if they had had sexual intercourse because they felt betrayed. They felt that, that their, their relationship was a lie. So we've got to be real careful when we're talking about this stuff. We've got to put limits on ourselves for the sake of our spouse and our family. Here's, here would be a good guide. As, as a pastor and as folks are on staff at this church, this is what we will talk about. We will not engage in any activity with someone of the opposite sex that we wouldn't feel comfortable placing right up here on this screen for you to see on a Sunday morning. Because we are playing with fire if we do some things. There, there are times when my wife will say, whoa, I, I sense a red flag. And I don't get defensive about that. I've learned to just say, okay, babe, you know, if there's if a certain situation, and this has happened several times. I've been a minister for 22 years now. It's happened several times that Janie, we've been married for 14 years. She'll say, you need, you need to be real careful with this person. Not that they're out to, to start anything. You know, I, I look at myself in the mirror and I have long since given up the idea that anybody other than my wife is attracted to me. Okay? 
But my wife will say, this is a red flag. And I'll say, whoa, okay. I didn't see that coming. I don't argue with her. I don't get defensive. I just say, babe, if you feel uncomfortable, then, then I'll go another direction with that. Um, I, I do that because I want to honor my spouse. I don't want to argue with her about... I don't want to get my self-esteem strokes from someone other than my wife. So, so I just got over that a long time ago and said, I'll honor you in this way. And uh, let me tell you, it makes a big deal to my wife. She'll come give me big hugs and big kisses because she'll say, you make me feel secure in our love. I said, that's my job, <laughs> to do that. Now, before anybody runs out and gets a divorce because of what I said, let's look at what God said in Malachi 2.16. He says, I hate divorce, says the Lord of Israel, the Lord God of Israel. There's his heart on it. This one man quoted it, and he was right. God hates divorce. He hates it. Why? Tell me some reasons why God hates divorce. He made us to stay together. But let's just think of a very practical reason. They shared it on the video. Why does God hate divorce? It destroys families. It hurts God's children. And if you have children, it hurts your children as well. God hates it. And, and we could go around, and any of you who have experienced divorce, you would understand very clearly why God says He hates it, because it hurts. There's nothing fun about divorce. But let me ask you this, and this is a question that we talked about. Does God hate divorced people? No. And we as a church have got to stop acting. Not, I'm not talking about this church. I'm talking about the universal church. We've got to stop acting towards people like God hates divorced people. I know folks who have been driven from churches because they've been looked down upon because someone was smug thinking, you know, I've got my act together and I didn't get a divorce. Well, maybe, you know, your pathology just works together with your spouse's pathology and some type of massive conflict avoidance thing. And maybe, just maybe, it's the grace of God that's kept you together and not your own goodness. Maybe you're not so superior. Maybe, except for the grace of God, you and I would be in different situations. Now, divorce was never God's intent, but he does say in case of sexual immorality, this may be the only alternative. Maybe. Doesn't have to be. God doesn't command divorce. He allows divorce. Someone may have one episode of sexual immorality and be truly repentant and broken over it and, and long to set things right with their spouse, with their God, with their church and do everything to be restored. And in such instances, it may be wrong, according to the Bible, to get a divorce because they're willing to be broken and ready to be uh, restored. So you can't be legalistic or mechanic with this deal. You can't apply everything to every situation. What we've got to do is we've got to come together in loving Christian community and talk to people and get this stuff out in the open and not try to run around behind the scenes in the darkness because that's where Satan works is in the darkness. When we come together in the light, that's when Satan loses his power. Now, quickly, let me mention one other situation where a spouse's behavior may be grounds for a divorce. It's in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul is speaking this chapter about marriage and he says, as a general rule, if a believer is married to an unbeliever, they should stay in the marriage. But then he gives another behavior as grounds for divorce. 1 Corinthians 7.15 but if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. In other words, if a divorce were to take place, there would be freedom to remarry. This is called divorce on the grounds of desertion. 
Paul here specifically says to unbelievers, if a believer is married to an unbeliever, um, some people show by their actions, by their lives, that they are not believers in Christ, no matter what they say. Now, it's not my job to judge whether someone is, is a Christian or not. My job is to love everybody and to tell them about Christ. But there are some people, by their actions, they demonstrate that they are not believers. They don't trust Christ. They don't follow Him. They don't look to Him for any guidance. And in such instances that someone deserts in that situation, then that would be grounds for a divorce. And desertion is defined as behavior equivalent to the abandonment of the marriage relationship. It's possible that somebody's still under the same roof with their spouse, maybe only for financial reasons, but they've abandoned the relationship emotionally, physically, relationally, and they're just playing games with geography. It's the equivalent to abandonment. This would include things like physical abuse. And let me just say, if you're ever in a situation or you're counseling somebody in a situation where they're being abused physically, tell them to get away. I'm not saying they go divorce. I'm saying they separate so that they are no longer in harm's way. I think that, that the church too often has misunderstood this and misapplied some things, thinking we need to be submissive and, and, and take physical abuse. Let me just be real clear. No, absolutely not. I don't believe that was God's intent. That's abandoning the marriage vows. When people stand before God and they promise this and they stand before um, witnesses and they promise these things, they have abandoned those, those uh, covenants whenever they begin to do physical abuse. But, but there's more than one way of abandoning, an, uh, abandoning a relationship. It may be violence. It may be behaviors that are characterized by long-standing, deep, painful patterns of deceit, addictions of unbelievable proportions, extremely destructive patterns of behavior. In that case, the injured spouse needs to go to a pastor, to a small group leader, to, to Christians that you trust, that you can talk to, and really do some praying and some searching because we've got to do this on a case-by-case basis. The teaching that we're looking at, you cannot get mechanical or legalistic about. It has to be done in community. And you can't abuse this language either and say, well, my husband doesn't talk to me, so he's, a, he's abandoned me. No, we're talking about hard-hearted, um, unmistakable, defiant, rebellious, deliberate abandonment. And it's a decision to lead a totally separate life. And, and, and in this case, Paul says the believing partner is not bound. In other words, they're free to remarry in that situation but only in the Lord and only to another believer. Every divorce is a product of two sinners because every marriage is a product of two sinners. That's just the truth about us. No matter how much mess, what percentage of mess belongs to the other person, um, if there hasn't been a time for self-examination and reflection and learning and submitting before God done in a wise, loving community, then the person is not ready to be remarried. They're just not. I read an article called, um, from a study called, Does Divorce Make People Happy? And this was the last question, the true or false question that I asked you all ago. This is amazing research, and here's what the study found. Nearly 80% of couples, 8 out of 10 couples, who rated themselves as very unhappy, yet stayed in the marriage, these same couples were asked five years later about their marital happiness. 80% of them were happy after five years. And they said it was things like, you know, the season of life. Sometimes you might go through an illness. You might go through a job loss. You might go through financial stuff. And they said just sticking it out, people found out they could learn to be happy later because the circumstances of life are not always the same. 
the other side of the equation, here's what the study found. Spouses who considered themselves very unhappily married and went ahead and got a divorce and had to go through custody battles and hardships and loneliness and future romantic disappointments and all of that, only two out of ten couples or, or individuals rated themselves as happy five years later. Maybe the answer is not a new relationship. Maybe the answer is a new you. There are many times when it seems like marriages are hopeless. Spouses, though, that go through self-examination and come before God, something incredible happens. God begins to transform their heart because in the Old Testament, God promised to Ezekiel, He said, there is going to come a time when I will come and I will remove your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. He's talking about this time when the kingdom of God would take up residence in the hearts and lives of men and women on this planet. And Jesus, when does Jesus see the kingdom of God as having taken place? When He was standing before the people. He said, now is a new day. Jesus saw the possibility of us coming before God and getting new hearts. Since He has walked on this earth, since He died on the cross, since He shed His blood for our sins, He's made it possible for you and I to get new hearts. And if we'll stay in relationships, God says He'll be faithful to us. If we'll work on relationships, if we'll submit our hearts before God, God says, I will take out that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh that's tender and submissive and pliant. And He says, I'll give you a whole new life. But only if you obey Me. It says in the Scripture, Jesus said, If you love Me, you will obey Me. Love equals obedience. Obedience is the key to getting that new heart. The ultimate hope of the kingdom is that the kingdom of God will break through in our lives. And when you and I submit to God, the kingdom of God begins to break through. When I turn my heart over to God, the kingdom of God begins to break through. When I work at reconciliation with you and with other people, the kingdom of God begins to break through. And then people see it and they say, there is something different. I want what you've got because it's not like everybody else is telling me about. My question for you today is, will you submit your heart to God? Will you say, God, your kingdom come, your will be done in my life, in my marriage, in my singleness, singleness, in my divorced life, your kingdom come. And really, my only question is, will you submit your heart to God? I just want to ask you to close your eyes for a moment as we finish. Would you consider saying this, God, I'm not even sure exactly what I'm supposed to do, but I'll be patient. I won't do something stupid. I'll be part of a Christian community. I'll open my heart and my life to trusted Christian brothers and sisters. I'll pray. I'll seek to have my mind renewed by Your Word. God, Your Word and Your will be done in my life, as confusing as it is. Will you submit your heart to God? If you do today, the kingdom of God will begin to break through in your life. Some of you here, you've gone through divorce and you know what it's like. And maybe it happened even though you desperately didn't want it to happen. When you open up your heart and you experience community and come before God, you begin to heal and the kingdom of God begins to break through. Will you submit your heart? Just in your mind, just say, God, here's my heart. Change it to be more like yours. If we'll do that, 
God will give us tender hearts in our marriages and with each other. And we can build a healing community of grace that creates an alternative for the divorce culture in which we live. God, give us new hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.